Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary, And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to our first Thursday, guest Thursday, back from our long break. We are really, really thrilled to have two people joining us. We don't very often have two people joining us, but it's exciting when we do. This is Anne Lyseth and Dr. Missy Hankey from the North Dakota, let me make sure I say this correctly, um, North Dakota Professional Health Program. Good morning. Morning. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, We were laughing a little bit right before we got on because we were mostly talking about how meat and potatoes heavy North Dakota is, which is second and third, maybe only to Ireland and Argentina. (laughs) And I can't imagine North Dakota ends up in that category very often of comparisons with those two countries. Not for the weather, anyway. No, (laughs) no. But but we were also talking about um, this this program, which we know about from two past guests, Dr. Grant Severson and Dr. Julie Blem, who brought us to these two women. So, Anne, maybe you want to start with just giving us a little bit of background on what this organization is and what it does for the medical profession in the community. Absolutely. Um, This program was um, created by legislation in 2014. Um, This program used to be under the Board of Medicine, and it was actually the Board of Medicine that went to legislation to have it separated. Um, It's kind of like church and state, the two shouldn't really meet. Um, So someone who holds your licensure really shouldn't be doing your monitoring. So yeah, so we are a, a confidential monitoring program for uh, physicians, physician assistants, and medical students that struggle with addiction and mental health. They're allowed to come into our program anonymously and seek the help that they need to get back on track and recover without being known to the Board of Medicine and being publicly um, plastered on their website with board orders. Now, mm-hmm. we do have, you know, we do have um, um, areas where we do need to report and we do, but for the most part, we're an advocacy program, not punitive. Sure. That's, that's so interesting because I think when you live on the outside of the medical profession, you think, well, doctors know everything and they, they're too smart to make these sorts of regular people mistakes. And and if they do, they'll be able to figure it out. I mean, we, we place these sort of unfair expectations on people who we deem to be intellectually superior to the average person. And maybe that's part of the pressure of the job. Missy, can you talk, excuse me, can you talk a little bit about your background, which is unbelievably interesting and in how you ended up in this work because that kind of feeds into that unfair expectation we place on doctors and other medical people? Sure. So um, I grew up in small town, North Dakota. Addiction was not part of the world that I grew up in. And so I grew up very much in that camp of people that struggle with addiction just are, you know, lesser than 
everyone else. And if you're just smart enough, you would know better. You wouldn't make those choices. Um, but I've always been drawn to mental health and behavioral health issues. So went down that road with my residency, also did internal medicine, uh, just to have a, a broader background. When we came back to North Dakota, the one of the staff that I had worked with when I was a medical student, she had actually gotten married and married the executive director of the Harvey Foundation. And I ran into them at Target. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and the, it was the same day that the medical director had um, retired at Harview. And so they tried to talk me into coming to work here. And I just said, oh, I don't know. That's not really my thing. I don't, I don't love addiction medicine. Well, um, lo and behold, I started and all I was doing was basically signing policies and procedures. And um, little by little, they sort of pulled me in, you know, to this, to this crazy and amazing field of um, addiction medicine. And so ultimately ended up going back to get more training. I left my other job. I find this field to be fascinating and ever-changing and we're all impacted by addiction. And so I think when the opportunity to work at the PHP landed on my lap, it, it was a very easy decision for me to make because through the last 15 years of doing this, I have realized that it is not about intellect. It is not about money. It is not about any of those things. In fact, most of our risk factors come from our genetic makeup, which we have no control over. And um, I see people fighting for their lives. And we, we talk about the pandemic every day, but amidst that pandemic, we have this epidemic of addiction and we're losing hundreds of thousands of people every single year. You know, alcohol takes 100,000 people a year. And now we've seen overdoses almost get to 100,000. And physicians are not exempt from that. We, we deal with addiction and, and mental health at the exact same rate as the rest of the population. And as you're talking about how we hold them to a higher standard and think that it's not really something they should deal with, the physicians also believe that. So we think as long as I'm going to work, I don't have a problem. It doesn't matter that I'm knocking back a fifth of scotch when I get home because I went to work today and took good care of my patients. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, our personal lives are falling apart. We can't pay our bills. We're getting DUIs just like everyone else. Yeah. But we kind of have ourselves on this pedestal. And so one of the things we're passionate about the PHP is just getting people to understand that the sooner we can intervene. The easier it's going to be, the better it's going to be for everyone. I mean, I'm a consumer of healthcare as well as a provider. I want my providers to be safe. Yeah. So, so yeah, we just need to make sure that people understand physicians are not exempt from this. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to ask this question. So I, when I was in rehab, I met a load of people who actually ended up being bipolar. And they were self-medicating with drugs and alcohol, which either was either like cheap vodka or meth. If someone's trained in a medical profession and has access to a, a wider range of drugs, do you see more people being addicted to more prescription drugs than just like street meth and cheap alcohol? Sure. So um, interestingly, and it has changed when I, when I was in my residency, we used to have a sample cabinet in the residency clinic and we could walk in there and get your stimulants and your pain meds. And it was just there for the taking. We don't do that anymore, thankfully, but um, there are still uh, 
groups of physicians who have access to meds, emergency, emergency room docs and anesthesiologists specifically. And we do see higher rates of addiction in, in those particular subgroups. But for the, the rest of us, I, I don't really touch meds anymore, right? I, I send a script to the computer and I don't have access. But historically, we did see um, more prescription drug abuse with physicians than, than necessarily uh, the general population. But now I think prescription drugs are so commonplace that we, we see a lot of that. And, and alcohol still is the most common substance that we see with physicians and primarily it comes from that whole work hard, play hard mantra. You know, I go to work every day and I'm, you know, nose to the grindstone and I'm getting burnt out. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to, you know, down a couple of bottles of Malbec. And yeah, so. Um, that, that reminds me of a thing that I feel like is revealing itself as a pattern in our very unscientific exploration through addiction on daily dose. But um <laughs> It seems to me that one of the things that I think is creating a really interesting problem culturally is that people who have more financial resources, which medical people fall into, there is an, uh, almost an expectation that as their financial, financial situation rises, so then does their interest in fine wines and good food and good art and all of these sort of uh, highbrow activities. And right. so you're not seeing doctors, like Maz said, drinking cheap vodka. You're seeing them get drunk on unbelievably expensive wines and hard liquors because that makes them sophisticated. You know, the, the wine cellars um, that people have mm. that they're, you know, they're taking whole basement bedrooms and turning them into wine cellars. And I, I'm not judging it. I'm just wondering if you if you see that as part of this growing trend, because I just think like, if I think about Julie's husband, you know, wine, wine was his problem. And of course they were going on beautiful tours through Europe and do, going to wineries and going to wine country. And that's what people with resources are sort of expected to do. I feel like there's an un unfair expectation on doctors that they will also have this very seemingly sophisticated lifestyle. Is that, is that? Oh, no, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think social media has sort of painted that picture and, and it, it, as a med student, you kind of grow up in that culture and that's just the expectation. I mean, we all know alcoholics don't drink expensive booze, right? They're drinking mouthwash. sanitizer, yeah. <laughs> Right. And hand sanitizer. Right. But no, you're absolutely right. It, it's it's kind of part of that that culture and that that sickness. And again, if I'm drinking if I'm drinking high priced wine, then I'm not an alcoholic, mm -hmm. even though I'm drinking two bottles a night. And it, it does sort of paint this unfair picture. And one of the things that our our participants struggle with is when they get sober, how do I go to a conference? Yeah. How do I go there and I get my drink tickets? What do I do with that? Or when people take me out to dinner. How do I, how do I not order wine or they order wine for the table? What do I say? Because it's, it's so outside the norm of what we think people expect from us. Now I'm not a person in recovery, but I will routinely order water club soda. And I, but I don't have that internal stigma because right? Right. I know if people want to judge me for drinking club soda, fine. But 
people that come from that background and they have that stigma associated, it's harder for them because they feel like they're raising a red flag. Right. And so trying to just change the culture of medicine and conferences and to get it back to that place of why does alcohol have to be part of this? Why can't we sit down and have a sober conversation with people that we'll actually remember talking to tomorrow? Right. <laughs> but that'll be fun. So, yeah. And I think yeah. so. I, even our residents, when they're going through their recruiting, um, they will come to Dr. Hanke and I and just say, well, what do I do? Because I don't want to disclose because that's frowned upon. And that's, you know, there's that stigma and shame. And, uh, and they, they will report that through the recruiting process at dinner, it's just lavish, you know, wines and, and, you know, they, the person hosting that, I think the culture, like Dr. Hanke says, needs to change because you don't know who has that, you know, that they don't want to share, but it's, it's, um, yeah, it needs to change. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. And I always tell people, just tell them I want to remember my evening. I don't, I don't need a glass of wine. I, I just want to en enjoy the experience. But yeah. Uh, it, yeah, we have to sort of prepare them for what are, what are you going to say when they order wine for the table? Yep. Yeah. How, how are you going to respond to that? Because, you know, just I'll just I'll just order it and just sip on it. It'll be fine. It's never the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting you bring it up because I've, I've certainly gone back to conferences um, since I've stopped drinking and you know Dana's come with me them, to them but that was always like one I won't go to um, it was called um, it was a Gordon conference it was in it was in a, a high school no a, col a college prep school yeah. yeah in like the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire so they took they bust you into the middle of nowhere to this private high school and they just fed you alcohol and I, I can't, I haven't been to one and I'm not going to go to one, but even small things like we went to the Jasper's, is it a soft opening? Yes. To the new hotel downtown. As soon as you walked in the door, they're there with trays of alcohol, like mm -hmm. right in your face. No, thank you. And they just- And it's not cheap stuff. alcohol. No, no it's one. not. No, no, but not to throw the Jasper under the bus. That's what people oh, do that, at soft just, openings. No, but, that's just um, my, the, new, the latest example. Yeah, so. but, Sorry, but I, I do think that there is like you would never go someplace and people would say line of cocaine. You know, I mean, like I've never I'm been anywhere where party. cocaine was, was on a tray. Um, right. it's, it's really bizarre that we know how many people are on some, some piece of the path around addiction and sobriety. We know how quickly they can be derailed by having it just casually expected that they will take it why in the world do we continue to tie it to all of our activities and i don't expect the two of you have an answer to that but <laughs> it's it's really it's really a systemic problem that we oh, have to i think keep talking about in an effort to just try to normalize something else no absolutely and it's interesting because as as I've been working in, in addiction and I go to addiction conferences, they don't give you drink tickets. Right? <laughs> That's very interesting. Right. So, so that subset has figured it out. But when I go to conferences with my husband, who's an emergency room physician, they get drink tickets. And yeah. I'm thinking, well, they shouldn't have them either, but you're right. And 
when I was a medical student, and I won't say where I went to medical school, but we had three parties a year that were open bar funded by the school. And thankfully, they don't do that anymore. But imagine that we're going to, and it was sort of a like, let your hair down kind of night. You guys been working really hard. Okay, but we would have settled for pizza and soda, you know? So it, it's fascinating, but it is that whole entire culture surrounding it. But if you, I mean, why can't people watch football games without beer? Why can't we, you know, go to high school graduations well, without alcohol? People have brunch without mimosas and bloody Marys. Marys. Why can't people, yeah, why, why does tailgating need to start at 8 a.m. with alcohol? I mean, I don't know, whatever. It's, I, I'm not even being as judgy as I sound about it because no, everybody who can manage it, including you and me, whatever, if I want to have a mimosa at eight in the morning, I guess I can, but I, it's a weird thing. And you just like so many things in life until you are with someone or you're in, in the work of what other people struggle with, you just don't notice how prevalent it is. Yeah. And I, I think of how many times I maybe had lunch with a friend. I said, Oh, come on, just have a beer with me. How rude and insensitive and yeah, you know, assaultive almost. It's like, oh my gosh, people should be able to say no, thank you. But I mean, there are there are places that do it right. Um, when I started going to my Saturday morning AA group, I could always tell something was going down in Fargo because all of a sudden all these men would be wearing gold and green. <laughs> and they'd go, we're going tailgating. And I thought, we're at an AA meeting. What's happening? And then someone explained it to me. If you go up to the Fargo Dome, they have a fenced off section for AA members. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And I you can't because I can't stand American football, but <laughs> it's a really interesting idea. But yeah, so they have a, an alcohol-free tailgate. They go and have burgers and drink root beer. Yeah, and the Sturgis Bike Rally, they have a, a church that has around-the-clock AA meetings the whole time the rally is going on. Wow. Because I understand that's a very vulnerable time yep. for people. And so they anytime you want a meeting, there's a meeting 24 hours a day. Gosh, so, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. So people are figuring it out. Yeah, it's true. So um, I'm curious to know, because we, we know that addiction has really become a larger problem through COVID. What has it done to the medical profession? Because obviously if COVID has been tough on those of us on the outside, the, this frontline workforce must really be suffering. What have you seen come out of this last almost two years now? We haven't necessarily seen things. I mean, we know it's happening. We know it's brewing under the surface. Um, but there's just some studies that came out recently talking about burnout in physicians during COVID. And it's 62% of physicians, they pulled like 25,000 docs and 62% of them reported symptoms of burnout, which certainly can lead to other things, right? It leads to depression, anxiety, irritability, impulsivity. And with impulsivity, we're going to see more substance use. Yeah. So I think we're right at the, the front end of it. And again, because physicians tend to be higher functioning and, and they have further to drop before they hit rock bottom, it's going to take a while before we really see the impact of that because we'll continue to function until we can't. So you can't. And are yeah. they doing a similar thing for nurses and, and physician assistants? 
Say, what do you mean doing a similar thing? Are they following the trends of? Yes, there's a lot of a lot of data with nurses specifically. Yeah. So absolutely, and and their burnout rates are exceedingly high as well. And it's it's just that constant pressure. And I I'm not on the front lines of COVID at Harview, but it's interesting. I can't go anywhere without people saying, Missy, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? What do you <laughs> you're just I can't even go to church without somebody asking me what I think about vaccines. And so you don't ever get to turn it off. Mm. And so I think that piece of it, yes, when, when people are at work, they're being expected to do more, but then they're getting text messages from their college roommates saying, my kid's got a fever and a runny nose. Should I take them in to be tested? It's just this constant people want access, people want answers. And I think we're really going to see a, a behavioral health fallout from this. We know suicide rates are up yeah. outside of the medical profession. So it, it only makes sense that it will be within the medical profession as well. In that same study, it was 14% of those docs reported having suicidal thoughts. Wow. So that, that's astounding, right? Because, oh, oh my gosh. And of those, like 10% sought help because there's this idea in the medical profession that, well, I, I don't need any help. I need to go talk to some psychologist. I have more training than they do anyway. The reality of it is we, we should be doing this proactively. You know, we should be starting counseling in med school and residency and, and all of that so that we know how to take better care of ourselves. 14% is astonishing to me. If, if you told me 14% of seniors in high school had suicidal thoughts, I would say, well, let's, we need to get into those middle schools and elementary schools and teach them how to take care of themselves. What are we doing for our docs? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And with that, Missy, isn't it the statistics between three and 400 physicians a year commit suicide? Yeah. And that's pre-COVID, right? Pre -COVID. That's, that's pre the burnout numbers and everything that we're seeing now. So, and we know suicide rates amongst the general population are going up. So um, we're going to see it with our docs. And if you, I grew up in small town, North Dakota. If you live in Lisbon, North Dakota, you can't afford to lose your medical provider. Nope. You live in Hedinger or Hazen or you, you can't. Almost anywhere in the state. Yeah. It's easier right. to I mean, say that the big metropolitan areas and everybody else can't afford to lose their doctors. Right. Yeah, and and so it's a it, it's a very scary thing, and so that's one of the things you with the PHP just to bring it full circle. Yeah, so we, we don't just work with substance use disorders. We also work with with mental health, and you know, as you're talking about bipolar and self medication, and absolutely we see that in in medicine as well. Somebody who has depression, and so they start doing lines of cocaine because it makes them feel a little bit better, or they're highly anxious. So you know what? I, I drink some scotch. Pretty soon I'm drinking scotch at lunch. And so it's and at work. Right. And and how many memes did we see about drinking at work during COVID? And it was ha 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 so funny, except for it's terrifying. Except for yeah. it's terrifying. If you're a teacher, if you're a semi-truck driver, if you're a doctor, if you're an arts administrator, I mean, I don't care you're what you're doing. Mom. I mean, yeah. 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 The one that sticks in my mind, I saw one with a mug. And they 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 said glue the 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 string and the label of your tea bag to the outside of the mug. Then they don't know what you're drinking. And I thought that's not even funny. <laughs> no, none of that stuff's funny. Yeah, well, they did a survey, didn't they? That said, um, 
they did a survey and 75, they did a survey of those working from home during the pandemic and 75% of the people surveyed admitted to drinking at home while working. Wow, I yeah. was not one of them. <laughs> I did no. work from home for a while, but but again, that's that part of that culture. We, we joke about it, we laugh about it. You know, how many memes did you see where the, the mom is, you know, distance learning with her kids and she's throwing back a margarita and- yeah. But those same kids need rides to somewhere. And now we're just going to hop in our car and yep. it's, uh, it's COVID is not, it has not been good for behavioral health period across. No, the I, I would think that that's true. In fact, I was thinking this morning, just sort of the miasma I fell into during COVID. And I wouldn't say it was a depression. I wouldn't say I had anxiety. It was none of the things that, that caused me to ever think, I needed to go and even talk to somebody, but I stopped cutting my hair. I stopped getting my nails done. I quit wearing makeup. I said to somebody the other day, I, I think I thought waistbands were just a thing of the past. I was <laughs> never going to wear anything that didn't just elastic at the waist again. And I realized about four weeks ago, I thought, you know, my life's not over. I, like it's time to sort of swing back towards taking care of myself, even in superficial ways, because COVID was fine for us, yep. but still was a weird dip. So if you've got, if you've got any mental health yep. issues, any addiction issues, any, any stresses that are exacerbated by that, it's not going to go well for anybody. No, and I, I agree with you. It was, it was last October, November, and I was just in that funk. And I, I said to my husband, I'm going back to group fitness. He said, really, are you sure? I said, COVID be damned, I'm going. Like, I'm, yeah. I have to do something because I'm, again, not depressed, not, oh. but just in a, in a rut. I didn't yeah. care if I showered. I didn't, you know, whatever. Yeah. In fact, I sort of started to take a little pride in it. Like, <laughs> how long can I go till I wash my hair? Well, you know, I mean, I, it's, it was a very weird time. Let's just leave it at that. All I know is I, I've talked to five friends of mine who are um, enjoying sobriety as alcoholics and every one of them, and I agree with them. They just all said, I, I cannot believe how lucky I am to be sober before this pandemic started. And I thought I, I couldn't imagine working we've, from we've home. We've talked and, a lot about that. It, it would have been, I mean, you're quite happy. I've got sober before oh, the pandemic. Well, it, uh, he I would have died. He I would have drunk yeah, himself to I death. can't imagine what these people are going through who, who are still suffering with this. Right. Yeah. And you, you have that advantage of you're you're already connected with your AA group. Yeah. So if you have to go to Zoom. That's okay. I mean, it's not awesome, but imagine trying to find sobriety on Zoom. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's great. You can go to meetings in Ireland and you can do those things, but you can't actually sit in a room with somebody who can put their hand on your leg and say, but yeah, it's, it's not the same. The, the only there is an upside though. Um, some of us are actually now friends on Facebook because we because everyone's <laughs> we finally found out whose per person's last name was because it came up on this. <laughs> so we've been friending each other on Facebook. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that little little nugget that aside. Little nugget aside, it is tough. I I actually stopped going to my Friday night Zoom meeting because I ceased to get any enjoyment or help out of it. 
and I feel bad, but my other meeting is 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 face to face, so I go to that not as often because there are less people there. So you kind of there isn't the variety and in new input that helps. Yeah. Yeah, and, and with that, we've seen a little increase, you know, with the pandemic, um, with the Zoom meetings, we have seen an increase in relapses within our program, sure. just because of that, they're not getting what they need out of Zoom, it's not the same, they don't have that support system built yet to contact, so we've seen a slight increase in relapse. So, and just to wrap this up for anybody who's listening, um, how do people find you and what can they expect if they reach out to you? Because I would imagine the same, it was true certainly in our experience. I think the first step is the scariest step because you don't know what somebody's gonna do if you even breathe the, the potential that you might have a problem. So talk to us just a little bit about how do people get to you and what can they expect? Well, they can find us at, uh, it's real simple, ndphp.org. They'll have our contact information. Um, it has both Missy's and my email. Um, they can email, they can call us. Everything is confidential. Uh, basically, we just wanna start with the concerns. And the first thing we wanna do is get an evaluation to see where we need to start. Um, and then we are your advocate through the whole process. And based on the recommendations from the assessment, we will see if you need to come into our program or if you need something simple or, um, and then we'll build a monitoring contract. And that is just, you know, the accountability portion of walking them through this process. And, and I think Missy and I are pretty easy to get along with. Yeah, we're all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you seem to be. <laughs> we are the whole NDPHP, just the two of us. So yeah, okay. Yeah. So it shouldn't it shouldn't be a scary process. You're gonna get you're probably gonna get Anne. You you may get me, but yeah, you know, we're certainly open to answering questions. And it doesn't have to be the medical provider that reaches out. It can be their yeah. nurse, their administrator, their spouse, somebody that cares about them. You know, hopefully it's not a patient that smelled alcohol. But if they did, then by all means, you know, call us up, let us know, and then we'll reach out and try to get them help. Sure. I remember one physician had, I had asked to meet with him. And when I got there, he admitted to me, he said, from the time you called me and said you wanted to meet, he said, I have been petrified. I didn't know what I did. I didn't. And he goes, but once I met you, he said, it's okay. So we try to meet personally with everybody because that is the, the scary part, the unknown. So we usually try and and meet with all of our participants and just get to know them and let them get to know us. We uh, provide them with both of our personal cell numbers so that, you know, if they can't reach us after hours, they know how to get a hold of us. I mean, we're, we work for every physician licensed in the state of North Dakota. We work for them. Wow. Wow. Well, it's extraordinary. I just think we just need more of this. I think people yeah. do better when they when they recognize commonalities in each other. And so for doctors to see other doctors or for Maz goes to a men's group, for men to see other men, and you can sort of let that guard down of not having to be your persona in the larger population, it's so important. And Missy, I'm just gonna say you have, um, <laughs> 
you've given me something to think about. I am a little bit afraid that every single time I've seen Grant Severson since COVID started, I've demanded to know COVID you facts. You have, you so absolutely have. I've I'm just realized that. And it's always in social settings. So I'm Grant, if you're watching, mm -hmm. no more COVID you conversation absolutely. with me. At least I've said it's been first. <laughs> right, people mean well, they, they just- I know, but they you're absolutely know. right. Yeah. I, I mean, in a, in a similar, but far less what, serious I'll, way. I'll leave it out for you. Next time I see his lovely wife, I'll ask her a legal question. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I just, that's, that's a really good reminder. Doctors are not, I mean, they are doctors 24 hours a day, but they also have to have time off. Um, both, both just because they've earned it as human beings and because everybody's mental health needs to step away from their profession. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you both you. for such an interesting conversation. Thanks for having us. We'll put the links to your contact information into the um, comment box. But really, I guess the takeaway is just if you if you wonder if you are struggling with something, stop wondering and go find out because you know, knowledge is power and knowing that you have a problem is better because you can work towards ending it than wondering if you have a problem and continuing to fall. Yeah. It certainly was the experience we had at our house and yeah. I bet it's happening at your house too. So these two women, I think will not point and laugh. I no. feel like you'll be very kind. You so it'll be, be, it'll good, be good. good hands, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, if you are a medical provider struggling with addiction or mental health or just even have concerns, please reach out to us. We are here to help. Excellent. Thanks so much Thank for you your time. And best of luck going luck. forward. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, Email me at D-A-Y-N-A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L dot com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.